Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome back to our series on the culture, against the culture, for the culture. If you have a Bible, let's turn back to where we were a few weeks ago in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And let me, I, I feel the need to say this somewhat regularly in this series. You, you can see that the words against the culture are in the title. So it is, it's a very critical series. At the same time, our goal is not to feel superior than other people or to feel self-righteous uh, about how other people uh, hold certain beliefs that we believe are untrue and unbiblical. But uh, we've got a number of things to, to look at today and to, and to sort of work through. And we're gonna, I'm going to pray real quick here, and then we're going we're gonna to dive in. But uh, Man, there's no shortage of, of things to cover in, in this topic. There's just, I feel like we're not going to get to half of what I would like to get to today. So let, let's pray, and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, I do pray for our church. Thank you for uh, the love of children that is so evident in our church, the love and care for the unborn, for those who are born. Uh, God, thank you for the moms in this church who care so much for their little ones, Thank you for the dads who want to love and care for their children and, and do so sacrificially as well. And God, I pray that our church could be a counterculture to our wider culture that would love children in a way that our culture oftentimes does not seem to and certainly does not. And uh, God, I pray we could be a light in the darkness, that people could see uh, the way we love one another and especially children, and that people could see the beauty in that and the glory there is in being a mother and a father and raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and that people would be drawn to that as countercultural as it is. I pray it would be seen as the way you truly designed things to be. None of us does it perfectly, but God, I do pray that people would see a difference about our church's culture and our church's way of being, and that by that, uh, they would be drawn to the true gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're just going to jump in with a clip first. I'm speeding it up just slightly, and uh, this is just a, a number of uh, pastors at very you know, progressive and liberal-type churches, and these, this is, these are reactions from various preachers to Roe v. Wade being overturned, and I don't even know how to set this up. Here we go. We will include a reproductive justice ritual in our flower communion. I will place the first flower for those whose stories include the choice to end a pregnancy. Each and every end is also a beginning. And so I place this flower for all who have aborted a pregnancy or partnered someone in an abortion for whatever reason under whatever circumstances. And please repeat the phrase as I place the flower. Beginnings and endings in our stories be held in unconditional love and acceptance. We have reduced Jesus to sentimentality and feel good and ignored his holy disruptiveness. I have to claim my energy of anger because life, all of life is sacred. Reproductive justice is a faith value. Our values call us to be on the team of those who have no voice, including animals, including people who are disfranchised and need more support than they get from the official system. I light this candle in commemoration of all mothers. On this Mother's Day, we especially need to remind ourselves of the mother's reproductive rights. Natural and fundamental rights, though not listed in the Constitution, belong to the people, the mothers, and not the government. This is what sustains our freedom from arbitrary and unreasonable restraint or from religious absolutes that the the so-called soul is imbued in us at conception, which we may or may not choose to freely believe. If we told these stories through the women, would our theological claims be the same and would they be true? Would Bilhah and Zilpah, who were raped into producing a quarter of the Israelite tribes and patriarchs, say that the god of their enslavers was their god? In 2012, the PCUSA General Assembly said this, we do not and cannot exercise total control in regard to fertility and procreation. But there is a clear realm for decision making. For moral choice that faithfulness can and must carry out. It is in this area of decision-making that the difficult choice of abortion can arise. May the hearts and minds of the Supreme Court justices be stirred. May true justice prevail over power and privilege. May this draft decision not come to pass this day or any other day. Jewish American Supreme Court Justice of Blessed Memory Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it best and I'll retain her original gendered language here. When I talk about abortion and pregnancy, I am mostly talking about women. Not every person who is pregnant identifies as a woman 
The decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and her dignity. It is a decision she must make for herself. When the government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. It's also, I believe, no coincidence that this mounting threat against access to reproductive health care has been coincident with a rise in inhumane restrictions on gender-affirming health care as well. I think it will further radicalize the evangelical movement. Many worry about what this Supreme Court will decide on cases in the future around same-sex marriage, LGBTQ justice, and gender-affirming health care. I've even seen some calling... Okay, hang on one second. I'm skipping ahead just slightly. A lot of people feel afraid. And American Christianity's continued not only complicity with, but orchestration of the continued attack on women, trans and intersex people who need abortion, and economically impoverished and people of color who do not have the money to breach barriers to abortion is a betrayal of the good news of the revolutionary Jesus with whom we strive to walk. Okay, just, just to, that's going really fast. He's saying that, that people who are against abortion are going against and betraying the gospel of Jesus. That's what he was saying. Today, it may look like Christians have secured a victory in the fight against abortion, but at what cost? The Bible says that it profits man nothing to gain the world, but lose his soul. And when it comes to the fight against abortion, I fear that Christians have done just that. Okay, so my goal here is not simply to, to mock those individuals. That's not what I'm really trying to do. Uh, but I, I, it needs to be very well known that there are a lot of so-called churches out there that are saying things like this all over the place. And so we need to know, we need, I always tell my students, when you're going to college, uh, go on the church website and look at the sermons, read the doctrinal statements, see what they believe, why they believe it, because you may, not, you may be going to what looks like a great church on the outside, and when you get in, you don't know what may be taught on the inside. So I've had students come back to me and say, hey, I looked up the website, and I was really disturbed, but I don't, I'm not even sure they affirmed the Trinity on their church webpage. It sounded like they didn't affirm the Trinity or whatever it may be. So because of the internet, uh, this stuff is everywhere available, but at the same time, uh, discernment is going to be absolutely crucial, especially for younger people as they are going away uh, and, and, and choosing a church for themselves, really, in, in the college years. Uh, there is a lot of this kind of stuff that is floating around out there, and so we need to be aware of that, not to mock them, but in order to know uh, not to buy into that kind of thinking. Uh, Greg, any, any reflections about when, when we see this kind of uh, so-called preaching from, from so-called churches? Let me go back to something we've, we've said before. We need to know our Bibles well, because there's a lot of people out there who, again, historically, they wouldn't try to justify this from Scripture, but now they're bold enough to do that and claim that they're loving people and they're preaching the gospel. Um, and in reality, they're doing anything but. And so we have to be ready to open up the Word. We have to be ready to look at passages in their context and call people out when they're misusing the text. Um, I mean, it's just, it comes down to it that simply. Uh, but the other thing is we need to make sure we know it well so we're not deceived. Uh, because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have a lot of conviction and a lot of passion, like you know some of these people, and we could see even more. They're, they're, they're going to wholly believe they're right and that they're actually being faithful to Jesus, and we're not. I mean, that's, that's what you, you know, that last person especially, you know, we're going against the gospel when we are anti-abortion. Um, and so we have to be ready to articulate what the gospel is and what it's not. Um, and we need to be ready, like I've said before, on a number of issues. We need to be ready to have long conversations. We need to be very patient, be ready to, um, to repeat the same things over and over and over and over again. Uh, because people are so, are so calloused on this issue. It's almost like, you know, you get calloused and there's... there's feeling way underneath the callus, but you got to get the callus off. And the repetition of truth over and over again is going to, I believe that's what the Lord uses um, with, you know, those who he works in to change their hearts on this, is just constant exposure to the truth, the same truth, um, again and again. We don't have to change the message. We don't have to flower it up or anything like that. We just have to speak it clearly with conviction. And um, that's what God's going to use to change hearts. Um, getting up, like we said last week, getting upset, getting angry. Like we, I, I get angry when I watch some of these things. Last week especially, um, some of the things we saw, it, and I mean, this too, it just, it makes me angry. Um, and so we have to be willing to have self-control uh, to talk through these issues. Uh, not that we, we lose conviction or anything like that, but if, if we just get angry and yell, then they're going to think, well, that's just what you are as a Christian. You don't really care about me. And we can deflate some of the some of the antagonism if we if we can comport ourselves um, 
in a self-controlled manner. And obviously, uh, the, this issue comes back to, um, I mean, in terms of politics, I remember asking just recently with some students asking about this, and it was interesting because the students, I think all my students were pro-life or are pro-life, but I could even feel a hesitancy to say, you know, how important is this amongst many other political issues that are out there? And so I could, I could, I could actually, some students said some things out loud that, that I could tell by the way that they were saying it, that, that and I, I get how this can happen, but there was a, a callousness, I think, a numbness that just starts to grow over time where you go, yeah, it matters, but there's a lot of other stuff going on too. I agree there's a lot of other stuff going on too. But, you know, one way to kind of wake ourselves up, I've heard, I think this comes from Scott Klusendorf again, he calls it trot out the toddler, okay? He says, when you're in an abortion debate and we agree that the unborn are human beings, these are babies made in God's image, if that's what we truly do believe, then imagine, if the, imagine that there was uh, a political movement in our country today to have elective killings of two-year-old and under, right? So King Herod type stuff, right? We're, we're gonna kill anyone two and under. If that was out and there was an actual, like half the country was in favor of killing two and under if the parents approved of it, we would be absolutely beside ourselves. Like, what are you talking about? That's infanticide. Like, what in the world? And we would feel like, imagine someone saying, well, I know killing children two and under is a big deal, but there are other political issues to think about. You'd be like, "Ah, we're talking about killing two-year-olds, okay? So what do you mean there's other? I mean, yeah, there are other issues, but do they even come close in magnitude to that? Well, the unborn, this is not categorically different. When we we are killing either a six-month-old in the womb or a first-trimester child in the womb, uh, we're not dealing with something that's morally different from killing a child that's just been born because they are all made in God's image. So I think often thinking of a toddler helps us wake up to the magnitude of of what we are discussing. I think you're touching on an issue, guys, there, or Mark, um, that's important for us. Um, it, it's been very popular in like mainstream, you know, we had mainstream Protestant, Protestantism, now we've got mainstream evangelicalism, whatever that is. Um, and it's very popular to, to say I'm, I'm a whole life Christian, not just, right. a, you know, a pro-life Christian. Like, and, and, they're, they're, and like you were saying, they're starting to, to take abortion and say, well, yeah, abortion's important, but so was, you know, so is these justice issues and this mistreatment here. And it's, again, we're not saying other issues aren't important. But the truly most vulnerable among us are the unborn. And if we begin to show a callousness towards them, then we have started down a path that will eventually make us callous towards other people at any stage of development. Um, and so I've heard it said, and I don't remember who this is original to, but the, the pro-life movement, if you're going to be whole life, you have to first be pro-life as in against abortion. Um, it starts there. Obviously, it needs to grow from there. We need to care about other issues and, and people, but it starts with the issue of abortion. And you think about the death penalty in the Old Testament, we looked at Genesis chapter 9, was given for murder, intentionally taking the life of an innocent human being. That's murder. It's wrong. And that's exactly what abortion does. Um, and so to say that that the first thing God, God mentions in the Bible that brings the death penalty for, for humans' evil is murder. To, to say that other forms of crime, which again are serious, but to say, well, that's, that's, you know, that's just one thing among like a hundred things. We've just removed the premium on human existence that God put on it. Um, and so to minimize abortion is to minimize murder. I mean, it seriously is. Um, and so to say, well, I'm not just, you know, pro-life in terms of being, you know, for the unborn. I'm pro all this. Well, that's great that you're, you're, we're for these other things as well. But if we start to minimize the horror of abortion, um, then, then we have gone seriously astray. I mean, we, we rightly are shocked at the Holocaust. I mean, what Hitler did in Nazi Germany did to the Jews, over 6 million Jews systematically just put to death. There's been 10 times that many killed in our country alone through abortion. But that, you know, we'll, you know, Holocaust Museum, like, oh, it's so horrible, so horrible. We don't ever want to repeat that again. But man, let's not make abortion a big deal. You know, let's just flatten it out. It's one among many things. It's really not the only thing we should be concerned about. I mean, we have become so... Um, I'm lacking the word for this right now, but we have become so inverted in terms of what's important 
in, in our day, and the church has as well. I mean, the church that, that minimizes this issue is a church that's already got its moral compass pointing in the wrong direction. So we're going to go to everybody's favorite show from two weeks ago, Dr. Phil. This is where you thought we were going to end up. So this is Dr. Phil a couple weeks ago. The, the woman wearing the white dress you'll see in a minute on the stage is Lila Rose. She is a Catholic, so we wouldn't agree with her on some important theological issues, but she's very strongly pro-life, and she's been really noble in, in her fight for, for the unborn for over 10 years now. She leads uh, Live Action, that organization. So th this is an audience member, and I'm not going to show the whole clip, but uh, this is an audience member who's quite angry at Lila Rose for, for taking a very strong pro-life position from conception until birth, and uh, this is kind of in the middle of her comment to Lila Rose. I really think you're a traitor to your own, and I will never be able to agree with you. There's nothing you could justify to say that she should have to carry it to bury it. There is nothing you could possibly say to justify that level of lack of empathy. And that's the problem I feel like in this country at the moment, we were founded on the lack of empathy and we've just kept up with that tradition. If, if you have no empathy. Okay, so first of all, using kind of intersectional language, she accuses her of not being a true woman, right? So she, you're, not, you're, you're a traitor to your own, right? You're turning against the rights of women by arguing for, for not killing unborn women. Ironically, right? And unborn men. Uh, so th that's she's, she's being called names. Uh, she's being called not truly a woman. She's saying that she doesn't have true empathy. She doesn't really love the mothers in these particular scenarios, which is the furthest thing from true in terms of the pro-life movement. That's just not, the, we, we know that that's not the case. But yet she's being called, this is like full-blown character attack on her because she stands for the unborn. And when she begins to try to respond, you'll see what happens. See, uh, Abortion is devastating for, to women's mental health. No one talks about that. The year after a woman has you an know abortion, it's really like the, the year after a woman to have the child. What kind of trauma is the that? Trauma that is the trauma is from the rape. The trauma is from the rape. The child's an innocent party there. The child and is we don't born take out yet. It's not there. Okay, now if you're not if you're not following, she, uh, Lila Rose is talking about caring for the child in the womb, and she says the child isn't born yet. What? The child's not there. So again, this is why the, the debate is one question. It's what, underneath all these very difficult scenarios and stories, yes, they're dealing with the scenario of rape here, which is real, and we've talked about it in the past couple weeks, and we're not minimizing the horror of that scenario. But what we're saying is there's one fundamental question. What is the unborn? If the unborn is subhuman or not human or not alive, then abortion cannot be that big of a deal, like having your tonsils removed or your wisdom teeth taken out. It's not that big of a deal. But if at the end of the day we're dealing with children made in God's image, which there is just no doubt that we are, then no argument validates the intentional killing of the unborn. Let me, let me rewind this last little part here from this audience member. Like the, the year after a woman to have the child, the, what kind of trauma is the that? Trauma that is from the, rape. the trauma is from the rape. The child's an innocent party there. The child is born yet. It's not there. So th that is the fundamental issue. Is this a child in the womb? If you answer yes, then what is a good reason for killing its life? And if the answer is no, then it's a completely different discussion. But I'm going to go just a little longer here. We, we should not take out generational sin on a child to say there's generational sin and that dad was but an abuser the so the We're child should be killed. At this That's rate. not We're fair to the child. We're talking about rights. And he just yes. said, we've been taken, a right has been taken away from us. And what is next? I want to address that because our fundamental human right that we all share in this room is life. It's the first human right. Laws are meant to protect the weak. In a society, who's the weakest? Who's the weakest in the society? A child. The they don't have a voice. They can't speak. A child the in the room, That's or a, weak. The but a poor child would be the weakest. And we're going to keep them that way by and a, and a child with disability. Listen, kids. whether you live 10 minutes or 10 years or 100 years, you're a human life, and you have the right to not be killed. Now, do you hear her calm, reasonable response? We've got to be ready if someone does come at us like that audience member to not respond in like manner. That's exactly what you're saying, Greg. And that's going to be one of the hardest parts it's in this whole it's discussion. It's really hard. It's going to be very hard because our emotions are so strong on this issue. We believe, I mean, again, we believe we're talking about killing babies. That's what we're talking about. So to keep, our, to keep ourselves under control is going to take God's help. We need the self-control of the Holy Spirit, but there's going to need to be passion that's not the, that's, it's not wrong to be passionate about this stuff. We don't, we don't want to be um, sinfully angry in the way that we talk about it. We don't want to be sinfully you know, self-righteous. But to be passionate is not wrong, and we need to be able to control ourselves by God's grace and to speak clearly and to speak calmly and, and to let uh, the other person's conscience begin to do some of the heavy lifting as they think through some of the, uh, some of the issues here. Yeah, I, I want to I draw attention to something because, again, obviously rape and incest, like those are, are horrible awful situations. 
But going back to the fact that we're talking about a human being in the womb, that is the innocent party. They should not suffer or lose their lives because of someone else's sin and someone else's uh, choices. Um, but it, that, it always comes back to those issues, you know, rape, incest, the life of the mother. This is where statistics, um, you can just look at the raw data that's out there, data, I'm not sure how you say it, but it's, you can look at the raw facts that are out there, um, and you, you don't want to build law based on exceptions. That is the worst possible path to take. Listen to this. This is a more conservative estimate. This was a survey that was done um, in the states of Florida, Louisiana, Minnesota, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Utah from 1996 to 2020. So that's, what, 24 years. Okay, a survey of more than 2.4 million women who had abortions during that time. Here's the stats that come from that. Okay, listen to this. 1.14% done to save the life or the physical health of the mother. 1.28% to preserve the mental health of the mother. 0.39% cases of rape and incest. 0.69% for fetal birth defects or eugenics. Um, So you combine those hard cases, the hard cases that they want to build everything on. Well, what about this? Um, 3.5%, which means... 96.5% of all abortions in those states during that time were performed for social or economic reasons. Um, A more liberal estimate would say 93% were performed for social economic reasons. And the reason why we mention that is in the vast, overwhelming majority of cases, abortion is not to save the life of the mother or because of rape or incest. It's just not. And so to make that the linchpin upon which their argument hinges, because it always goes back to those issues, well, you don't care about the life of the mom. What about rape and incest? Again, those matter. They matter. But you don't systematically put to death that many more children who are put to death for reasons other than that. I mean, that's just insane to argue that way. It is utterly insane. And so basically, like we've said, it is, in many ways, people want their freedom to do with their bodies what they will, and if, some, if they get pregnant because of their bad sexual choices, they don't want to have to have consequences. That's basically why abortion is a thing. Now, again, the life of the mother, you know, that, that's... That's the one time, I think, where we can say, well, that's between uh, a family and their doctor and the Lord. Um, Do they have kids? Do they not have kids? Um, You know, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy, the baby can survive anyway. So, yes, save the life of the mother. Um, Other cases, they're gut-wrenchingly awful no matter which way you look at it, and there's no good decision um, in those. But other than that... There is no good reason. And the fact that they argue there is shows that they want the freedom to do with their bodies what they will, and it is worth killing a human being in order for them to have their freedom. And just to give some real-life stories, again, backing up what Greg is saying, this is from Vice News, very liberal, not at all. I mean, they're very much pro-choice in their approach. This is an 18-year-old girl, I believe she is, who's choosing to have an abortion. There's nothing graphic in this part of the video, but I do want you to listen to her reasoning. She's 12 weeks along. Hello. Hi. Dr. Aman El-Sadin is the medical director for Planned Parenthood's Great Plains region. Kaya is one of 50 patients she's seeing today and one of tens of millions of women who could lose access to abortion care. We're just going to ask you a series of questions that are required by the state of Kansas when you're getting an abortion. Are you going to want to know how far along you are based on our ultrasound? Um, no. Okay. And will you want to see the ultrasound image? No. Will you want to receive a physical copy of the ultrasound image? No. Do you want to know if you have a multiple pregnancy, like twins, triplets? No. Why did you decide to terminate your pregnancy? Because I knew that I couldn't give a life that was deserved. And also, I was just too, I'm too young. 
I know that there are single parents and young mothers out there who have done it and can do it and are fully capable, but that's just not my situation. There are a lot of states that are outlawing abortion right now. Kansas is kind of in the middle of this sort of sea of red. And I wonder how your life would be different if you couldn't terminate your pregnancy. I would not be able to maintain a job and work and take care of a baby full time. I would um, probably ultimately give the baby up for adoption. There would be a piece of me out in this world that is just somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that was devastating for me. I couldn't, that's why I'm here. I can't, I can't do that. That's a pretty typical story. And she says, I'm young. I, I can't raise this child. And, and what, what we're probably all thinking is adoption, right? That, that's the, if, if, she, if she can't, adoption is totally legitimate and wonderful as, a, as, a, as an alternative. And she finally gets to that option and she says, if I were to give the child up for adoption, which is what I would do if I couldn't get an abortion, I would give the child up for adoption. A part of me would be out there in the world somewhere. I just don't think I could live well with that. So I'm just saying, the alternative is that she, she's going to get the, the, the abortion right here in this particular clip. And... Um, just the reasoning. It's just give her up for adoption. We, we can find many wonderful Christian couples or, you know, who, who can take that child in, who will, who will love that child well. But uh, this is a much more typical story of, of why uh, abortions occur. Yeah, and, and again, um, it comes back to the issue, is this a human being? Um, and it's one of those things when I have the opportunity to talk at, about this at school with my students, um, we just apply the logic of this to any other age any other age, any other development in our lives. Um, and we, we typically will not say, you know, this, it's okay to take a human life so I can have more convenience in mine. I mean, we just don't say that. We don't, you know, uh, we don't do that. But it's because people have believed a lie. I mean, we have to go back to Romans 1. It says that they, um, I, I want to read it because I'm not going to remember it. We, we need to go back to, to this because it's very clear about how sin works in, a, in our hearts. Romans 1, um, several things. It says they, that man in his sin um, exchanged, Romans 1, 23, or verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Um, and then it goes on again to say in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Um, again, why are people doing this? It's because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And the result of that is God gave them up, it says, verse 26, to dishonorable passions. Now, what's interesting, because um, I had a discussion on this in one of my classes the other day, um, you've, you've got kind of a, a process that, that follows here. And we're going to talk more about the sexual revolution and stuff like that at a later point. But, you know, it starts with man rejecting God. Um, the, the sexual sin and the perverse sexual sin that humanity gets itself into is downstream from idolatry. Like once in our hearts we decide we're going to worship something other than God, and we're going to give glory to something other than God, well, the typical way that manifests itself is in sexual freedom. Um, to, to do what we want with our bodies, however we want, with whoever we want, in whatever manner. Um, and so abortion is even further downstream from that. It starts with rejecting God. So anyone who says they can be a Christian and be pro-choice is a living contradiction. You can't love Jesus and be pro-choice. You can't. You can't. And just just um, to add a footnote, if, if yeah. someone were unrepentantly pro-choice and a member of this church, they would undergo church discipline for that. So it would begin with a one-on-one -on -one confrontation, as mm -hmm. Jesus said, then two or three, and then it would be taken before the whole church. And if a person said, no, I, I am pro-choice, I think it is okay that to, to terminate pregnancy for any and whatever reason, uh, that would be considered unrepentant sin. That, that's a yeah. serious uh, thing, but I, keep yeah, continuing. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and so we reject God, and in our rejection of God, we, we exchange God for something else um, in our lives, um, which is not God. And then when we devote ourselves to that, God eventually gives us over to our sinful inclinations and desires, 
expressed sexually. And so abortion is kind of like if you want to have it in terms of steps um, of a process, it's rejecting God, sexual promiscuity and sin. And in order to preserve this, which is a function of this, get rid of the consequences of this so that we can keep doing this. Um, and so abortion is ultimately a, a, a symptom of someone who is in rebellion against God. And we need to see it that way. Um, we need to see it that way. And another story, again, these are just brief clips here. This is a Texas couple, and when Texas made their laws more stringent, uh, they could not get the abortion they wanted. At six weeks pregnant, Marnie, 37, and her fiancé, John, 43, decided to have an abortion at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Austin, Texas. And here's just a brief part of what they say they chose to do. So she said she'd gone through most of her life not hearing people's abortion stories. Somehow I've made it through my life never hearing anyone's abortion story. And I truly believe, and now that I'm reaching out to people, that I'm learning that all kinds of friends and family have had abortions, and I was not even aware because of the stigma around abortion. We talked about the pros and cons of both and looked at you know, the health of our relationship, how long have we been together, um, do we have enough built as a foundation to create a loving, happy, healthy family. We looked at our financial situation and we're both self-employed and our paychecks are variable. And Let me just pause. I'm not trying to be mean here. Does it look like they cannot care for a child? They're, they're, both, they're both employed. I mean, they're both self-employed, but the idea that they're just in rags of poverty here is just not true. It's very much feast or famine at times. It was a decision we didn't make lightly. I think for all the reasons that Marty described, this was absolutely not the right time uh, for us to have a child. Now stop there. First of all, it's often said that the decision was not made lightly. No one says that about having their tonsils taken out, right? I think we know more is going on here. That's why we talk about how serious. I, I did not make, I, I, the other the girl in that last interview, later on, that 18-year-old girl, later on she said, I, this was not a decision I made lightly. People feel the need to say that. I never hear anyone say that about having their wisdom teeth taken out, right? When, when it comes to just doing something that's non-moral, it's just like you just have them removed. No one sits there and says, I, I, you know, I was grieving. I, it was a very difficult decision because we all know deep down that we're doing something that is far worse than we act like it is, right? We, we know deep down. That's why they say that. But listen again to his comment here. I want to listen one more time. And at times. It was a decision we didn't make lightly. I think for all the reasons that Marty described, this was absolutely not the right time uh, for us to have a child. And I want to stop and say, you already do. What do you mean? It's not time to have a child. You, are, you guys had a physical relationship. You're, you're engaged. That was your choice. And now you have what comes from having sex. You have a child in the womb. You have a child. It's not that you're thinking about whether to have a child. You already decided, apparently, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you did something that resulted in that, and now you have the child. It's not whether we're going to have the child. It's I have the child. Now what do I do? And once you change the sentence that way, you, you realize how much it changes the conversation. And it's something we had discussed, and so it wasn't an easy decision. It's something we spoke about at length, um, but we'd made up our minds, and, and we, we believed then and we believe now that we'd made the right decision. And then, then it says the night before her scheduled appointment on November 1st, this is a few years ago, the Fifth Circuit, Circuit Court of Appeals reversed a lower court's ruling allowing Texas to implement strict new abortion regulations. I won't finish the clip, but the clip is them furious at the government for forcing her to have to wait longer to the pregnancy and to travel further away in order to get a later term abortion, which is what she ended up doing. So this was actually them pretty angry at restrictions against abortion. But again, you see here, this is a much more typical story of the kinds of things that are often not brought to the fore. When you only hear about the most extreme rape scenario, right, it begins to distort even what is going on here. But like your statistics were saying, this is far the norm. Well, it also too, I mean, statistics help you know, one, debunk the lies that the pro-abortion industry has out there and the, the, the cloud of fuzziness on this issue. But it, it, it comes back to, regardless of your statistics, regardless of whatever, it's a human being. And we are, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And, you know, we're not thinking in terms of innocent, like, before God, but in terms of innocence before mm -hmm. one another, they've done nothing wrong to anyone. There's no reason to put them to death. There's no reason to take their life. It's evil. It's sin. It's murder at the root of it. Um, and we have to come back to that because one thing I find, at least how my mind works, I can get all caught up in this and almost forget that regardless of the arguments, this is a human being we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, it's 
evil and wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. So let's turn back to Psalm 139, if, if, if you're there or not there. Psalm 139, and let's just read a few verses, and then I want to show you a few, again, brief clips here about uh, children very early in pregnancy. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now, again, these are things that many of you have seen before. This is a brief clip uh, of a child four weeks uh, wait, what is this, seven weeks? I think it's going to tell us here. Uh, a child very early in the pregnancy. Four weeks. Four, four weeks, here we go. The heart typically beats about 113 times per minute. Note how the heart changes color as blood enters and leaves its chambers with each beat. The heart will beat approximately 54 million times before birth. There was a politician, I won't say the person's name, from Georgia, who said that uh, uh, the, the, the heartbeat of the unborn is nothing more than a trick by men to control women's bodies. That was said, I think, a week ago. Um, this person is from our great state, and uh, that, that's what they said. I, I mean, that's obviously, that, that doesn't even make any sense at all. But, but the, the, virtually every surgical abortion would take place after this. I mean, th this is, this is uh, early on. And then another, just another very brief video to go alongside that one. Uh, look, look at this amazing uh, th this is just a child who is alive, and just look at uh, very early in the pregnancy, look at this. I mean, that's a human being. Virtually all abortions are going to take place after, okay, a afterwards. So we are killing those image bearers of God in these procedures. Um, something to keep in mind, too, um, because this is a newer argument that I've been hearing coming out, and it's got the same foundation um, on other issues that we're going to talk about. Is, and I, I might not be getting the terminology exactly right, but it's gone from, you know, is the baby in the womb human to, well, they might be human, but they're not a person. Mm -hmm. And so they've started separating humanity and personhood. And it's the same argument you hear now, like that we're going to talk about later, uh, that people make with... Um, your gender and your biological sex. Well, I might be biologically this, but this is my gender and that's what I really am. Um, it's the same kind of distorted view. Uh, and why do they have to do that? Why do they do that? It's because they know they lost the argument. They lost the argument. They know they're wrong. They know that they're murdering an innocent human being. Um, but because they love their sin more than they love what's right and they love their sin more than they love human life, they're gonna constantly, as they say, shift the goalposts. Um, and, and, but yeah, so why, why, why can they soothe their conscience now? Well, it, it's human, yeah, but it's not a person. Well, where, where do we ever have the right to distinguish humanity from personhood? I mean, the, the two are inextricably linked, and it's the same, same thing. Your gender and your biological sex are the inextricably linked. You, you can't separate those things. Um, but again, people have already come to the conclusion that they're going to do what they want to do, and they should have the right to take your life if you're an inconvenience to them. Um, and so they're going to constantly be shifting terminology, shifting stuff like this, uh, because why? They, they know somewhere deep down, I have to believe, they know they're wrong. They know that something is off about their position, but as Romans 1 says, what do people in their sin do? Suppress they the suppress truth. the truth in unrighteousness. And shifting terminology, like what people are doing today, is suppressing the truth. That's why news outlets will refer to like, you know, I remember when, when uh, some celebrity was pregnant, they talked about her baby. You know, this is like six months into her pregnancy. All, all these famous, you know, New York Times, her baby, the baby, the baby. And it's like, wait a second, if it's another article with a child the same age in development, we're going we're, we're to call it the fetus and we're going to talk about the rights of killing it. But in this article, we call it the baby. What's this doublespeak going back and forth? It's because we all know what this is. We, we know. We, we see the child moving around. We see the hands and the feet. We see the head. We hear the heartbeat. And we, we have to tell ourselves, it's not a heartbeat. It's that, that's not really a heartbeat. That's not really a person. Uh, it may be alive, but it's not human. I mean, we're, we're coming up with logical distinctions to try to justify, again, what is obviously not justified. Something else, and I was hoping I'd remember this, something I've thought about in relation to this. You know, you go back all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
you know, Satan's original lie. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's not that Adam and Eve didn't understand the difference between good and evil. What it's getting at is they would be the ones to be able to determine what good and evil was, like God. Um, and so what we see is the ultimate idolatry of man putting himself in the place of God, being able to decide what life is and what life isn't, who deserves to live and who should die. It is, it is the ultimate form of self enthronement. I see nothing but the spirit of the Antichrist in that because we talk about what is one of the hallmarks of the Antichrist, that, that final figure at the end. He's going to sit in the temple of God and act as though he is God. Mm-hmm. And that spirit is what is at work in this when people say, I can arbitrarily determine when you become worthy of protection and when you should be put to death. And, and I, I know th- this argument may get a t- become a tired argument, but it, it probably shouldn't what, what Adolf Hitler was doing was very similar. You have someone who is human, a Jew, and you say that they are less human than other people, the Aryan race, and there's a different superiority of race. Okay, so now we've got someone who's subhuman, and therefore we can put them in the gas chamber and we can kill them. So it's a very similar kind of argument. We're talking about children in the womb who are being not, they're not human yet, and he would say the same thing about the, the race of the Jews at the time, the ethnicity of, of Jewishness. Now, I mentioned last week uh, abortion survivor stories. We looked at one from Melissa Oden last week. In the same exact congressional hearing, this woman, Gianna Jessen, uh, testified. I'm just going to show a part of this, but she also survived a saline abortion in 1977. I was delivered alive in an abortion clinic in Los Angeles on April the 6th, 1977. You can see a photo as well of my medical records. Um, my medical records state, born alive during saline abortion, 6 a.m. Ha! <laughs> Victory. Thankfully, the abortionist was not at work yet. Had he been there, he would have ended my life with strangulation, suffocation, or leaving me there to die. Instead, a nurse called an ambulance, and I was rushed to a hospital. Doctors did not expect me to live. I did. I was later diagnosed with cerebral palsy, which was caused by a lack of oxygen to my brain while surviving an abortion. I was never supposed to hold up my head or walk. I do. And cerebral palsy, ladies and gentlemen, is a tremendous gift to me. I was eventually placed in foster care and later adopted. And hear me clearly, I forgive my biological mother. Within the first year after my birth, I was used as as an expert witness in a case where an abortionist had been caught strangling a child to death after being born alive. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, said the following, The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. And the the amazing thing is that people still speak well of Margaret. There's the Margaret Sanger Award that is still given out to this day. It's like, what in the world? So the the founder of Planned Parenthood there um, being the one that she's quoting. But there are uh, are, uh, testimonies. I I think, I don't remember the whole story because it's been a while since I listened to her, but I think she is a Christian. I can't remember for for certainty, but I think she is a Christian. uh, If I remember her story correctly, the longer version of the story. But uh, for her to be able to say she forgives her biological mother uh, is is pretty astonishing. But you can hear the horror of what had happened to her and how she was able to to come through that and to overcome uh, that adversity. Um. I don't have, like, yeah, I'm, I don't have anything to add to that. Okay, let, let me just, uh, a few more things. I, w- I want to get through these before we, we're, we're at, we're, this part of the series is over. So I'm trying to get everything out here before we're done. This is from a few years ago. A woman named Kathy Tran in Virginia was trying to push through legislation that would, review, what would revoke all restrictions on abortion. And just listen, because I think you can see in her own face the sense of shame over what she is having to say through a microphone of the bill she is supporting. Delegate Tran. Yes, sir. How late in a pregnancy would your bill apply if a physician would simply willing to certify that that the uh, continuation of the pregnancy would impair the mental health of, of the woman? How, how late are we talking about? In well, so, so the way the suggestion that we've um, made in the bill is to say it's in the third uh, trimester and at the you know, with the certification of the physician. So, so how late in the third trimester would you be able to do, to do that? 
you know, I'm, it's very unfortunate that our, the, our physicians, uh, our witnesses, were not able to attend today to speak specifically. No, no I'm to talking that. about your bill. How, yeah, how late? I mean, how late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. So I mean, through the third trimester, the third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay, but to the end of the third trimester. Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, of, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a you know a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman. I understand would make that. At I'm that asking point. if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that. Yes. Uh, that's a Did you see the way she grimaced on her face right before she answered that last question? Uh, let me just go back just for a second, if I can catch that part. She's dilating. Watch her face right there. She she knows this is crazy. And yet that's the bill that she is promoting in that moment. Why would you grimace? If it's about, again, if it's about having your wisdom teeth removed, if it's not a human being, then why are you grimacing over that question? Because she knows, she's a mother, I think. From what I hear, she's actually a mother herself. She knows what she's talking about here. And she knows that what she is promoting is in direct contradiction to what her conscience is, is telling her uh, in, that, in that particular moment. Just answer the question. Right. Why is there such a hesitancy? Just answer the question. Like, Okay, I want to wrap up here with a final testimony. This will take a few minutes. Uh, this is from a former abortion doctor, and this may, this may bring some tears to your eyes uh, because it did for me when I watched it. Uh, this guy has performed a whole, he's performed hundreds of abortions, and he's become a Christian. Listen to what he says. Fast forward about five years. Um, I was in private practice. Uh, my wife and I had two children, and she was pregnant with our third child. Uh, one night she told me, she said, you know, I feel like I did when I was going into labor with the other two. And the problem was she was only 26 weeks along. She was in preterm labor, advanced preterm labor. And despite our best efforts to stop her labor, she delivered Matthew. Matthew weighed two pounds and three ounces when he was born. He lost down to one pound and 11 ounces. Now in 1982, that was practically a death sentence. Uh, it, it was the cusp of viability, but praise the Lord, he survived. And not only survived, he's, he's with us today and doing well. But then I had a problem uh, getting my arms around the fact that the neonatologists were working around the clock to save my son's life. And in another facility, they were aborting babies that same gestational age. Now that's the scientific reason that I became pro-life because I realized that no matter how far along pregnancy is, it's still a baby. The spiritual part of my journey happened another decade, almost a decade later, when I was reintroduced to the Jesus my mother had introduced me to. And that led me to read scripture and understand about the sanctity of life. And I'd like to really talk to uh, people who are watching this video, both those who have had an abortion or who are abortion providers, or working in abortion clinics, there is a better way. Uh, no matter whether a woman celebrates her abortion or is grieved by her abortion, there is a wound there. I practiced for 40 years and I have grieved with my patients. I have uncovered wounds that have been uh, covered up for years. The wound is still there. And how you deal with that, there's only one way. And that's through Jesus Christ. You see these hands? These hands destroyed 
over 700 babies. Those 700 babies are speaking through me right now. Their lives are not taken in vain. I'm having the opportunity to speak to you today, but I want to tell you, Jesus has forgiven me. It's, uh, he takes all of that sin with him. He takes all of my guilt and my shame. It's gone. And that same freedom is there for you if you're still dealing with this. He died and was resurrected, the Son of God. He, had a, he didn't deserve to die. He was blameless. But he took our sin with him. He took my abortion sins with him. And he can take yours too. So if you're struggling with this, if you're, if you're hurting, it's a very simple thing. Whether you uh, are doubting what I'm saying or not, just simply get in a quiet place and tell him what you've done. Ask him to forgive you. Jesus said. I gotta stop right there. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> uh, Heavenly Father, that is a remarkable testimony of your incredible forgiveness of a man who, as he just said, his hands took the lives of 700 children. And we do believe the cross is big enough to forgive him, to forgive any of us of sin that we've committed. God, thank you for the gospel. God, I do pray that our society that has had so many abortions committed, 60 plus million in the last 50 years in our country alone, God, I pray for the men and women involved in those scenarios who are still living, that you would even now, that you would help them to feel the guilt and the horror of what they have done, and that they would see the power of the cross to forgive them, to restore them to a whole new life, and to completely transform uh, everything. And so, God, I pray that we would not lose track of the gospel in this series, that as our culture is incredibly fallen and corrupt, there's also a great and glorious Savior who is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to Him. And so, God, we pray now that you would be with us in this service coming up, and I thank you for this time to think about these important things, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.